Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Jonathan Farrow speaking with Larry Kudlow, chief economist to President Trump on a wide ranging interview talking uh, about jobs, but also talking about trade and the implications there. Uh, and I want to really home in there on that. And we have our own Carl Kadana still with us uh, listening to the interview alongside us, chief U.S. economist for uh, Bloomberg Economics. I just real quick want to get your reaction to Larry Kudlow's response on whether the U.S. is less incentivized to come to some sort of trade deal with China based on the strength that we're seeing in the U.S. economy, especially since we're not necessarily seeing commensurate strength in the Chinese economy. Well, I think if we look back over the uh, last uh, two months or so, uh, we can see that uh, the, the most progress in trade talks occurred during periods where the market was down, the economic tone was uh, negative. Uh, you know, there were questions about uh, you know how weak the U.S. economy actually was. Certainly, China continues to slow, so they, they have incentive uh, to come to the table. Uh, for the U.S., uh, when we've been in periods of an up market and an up tone in the data, uh, the uh, trade negotiations have been that much more cantankerous. And uh, Larry was very cautious uh, not to uh, provide any direction to things. And Jonathan is rightly asking, uh, we really have two levers in the trade talks. One was, uh, do we pick up where we were in October uh, when uh, the 25% tariffs were due to go up to 30%? Or uh, is October just ancient history? Uh, and the next step, if things deteriorate, would be the December 15th tariffs, which are on about $156 billion of products, uh, many which are uh, consumer goods and things of uh, that nature. And, and Larry really didn't want to provide guidance in that uh, uh, direction at all and instead only talked about uh, the potential uh, for a phase one deal. Just to put some numbers around that very briefly, if we add... Uh, dusted off October uh, and pending December tariffs together, that price tag is greater than everything put in place in 2018. So we're not talking peanuts here. This is a very consequential yep. uh, levers that are uh, are looming potentially very close uh, in, in the near term uh, that uh, could uh, dramatically impact the economic outlook. December 15th, that's a key date. Carl Wickedonna, thanks so much for sticking around with us. Carl's the chief U.S. economist uh, for Bloomberg Economics. Let's shift gears a little bit, talk about the global markets, including the energy markets. Uh, big meeting just is wrapping up uh, with OPEC in Vienna. Uh, Jason uh, Schenker, president of Prestige Economics, He's also the chair of the Futurist Institute and a Bloomberg Opinion contributor. Uh, he is in Vienna for the OPEC meetings. And also joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios is John Author, senior editor for Bloomberg Market. So, Jason, let's start with you. Give us your key takeaway from the OPEC meetings in Vienna this week. Well, I think there's a couple things. First is that uh, the group is concerned about global growth. They're concerned that oil inventories uh, could weigh on prices. As we saw the last time, there was a Chinese manufacturing recession, which happened between the, the uh, December of 2014 and middle of 2016. I think that's a real concern. They're looking at the macro. They're trying to come up with a price bullish story and keep the inventories under control. And I'd say there's extra pressure coming from Saudi Arabia as they're running up to an IPO. So just I'm wondering whether you think these cuts uh, that are going to be implemented are going to make a significant impact in pricing. In other words, should we expect oil prices to rise? Well, 
Other commodities probably give us a hint as to what we might expect. In the last few months, copper and aluminum have been kind of gradually rising. Oil prices could rise a little bit in the first half of the year because of the summer driving season, right? This we look at the jobs number today, the 2020 summer driving season in the United States was the big driver of global oil prices. Probably going to be the biggest driving season in history. People have jobs, people have money. The refineries ramp up in Q1, Q2. So oil prices could see a little bit of upside, almost regardless of what OPEC does today uh, at the beginning of, of 2020. Jason, I'm glad you brought that up. And John, I want you to come in here, John Authors, uh, about the demand side of the picture, how we are seeing optimism grow heading into 2020, that we're going to see a reacceleration of sorts, albeit yep. uh, a little bit more tempered than in the past, of the global economy. Do you think that the data supports that shift in view? Yes, uh, it does support the idea of another re-acceleration after another mid-cycle slowdown or whatever you want to call it. We had one of those uh, in 15-16, uh, um, which at that point was the optics certainly were focused on, on China. It looks as though we're having another one now, which we might in time come to blame on Germany and the Eurozone. Certainly German auto manufacturing is in a horrible States by its own by its own uh, uh, by its own standards. If you take a look at the latest uh, ISM data from the beginning of the the week, you do see uh, the beginning, uh, you know, a nascent restocking boom. Um, new orders got cut back a lot. I suspect, in large part, forget about other aspects of demand, but this was another effect of the trade war. And a per perverse effect is that we're now eighteen months on from people putting their new orders on hold because they were nervous about the trade war and they'd really got to buy something. Uh, and the inventories have been winding down during the process. So the, the chances of a re-acceleration and another move upwards uh, are quite high, whether that means, uh, and therefore an extension for a bit of the longer cycle we're in. Whether I'm happily going to tell you that we're about to go off on another major, major rally is another question. And you can also make the loaded comparisons to 98, which is another time when the, the Fed cut rates when the economy didn't look so bad. Um, and the economy did do very well for a year or so after that. The market did unbelievably well for a year or so after that, but we know what's happened next. Uh, Jason, I want to go back to you real quickly. There's some news out this morning. Uh, the Saudi minister thinks that the Saudi Aramco IPO or that company will eventually, in perhaps in the near term, trade above that $2 trillion mark. It was priced uh, uh, earlier this week at a $1.7 trillion. What's the latest talk in Vienna uh, about the Saudi Aramco deal? Was it considered a strong success? Well, I, I'm not an equity analyst, uh, but I would say that, you know, it's something that's hanging and looming large over the meeting because obviously the Saudis would like to sacrifice, uh, maybe have the group sacrifice a little bit of income uh, to prioritize balance sheet as they're looking to do their IPO. I mean, yesterday there was a marathon set of meetings, no decision made. If a bunch of NOCs were doing IPOs in in the next year, you probably would have gotten a deal pretty quickly, uh, but that's kind of where we're at. And as we look at the year ahead, there are some risks because the PMIs, the Eurozone plus U.S. ISM plus uh, Saishin, Chinese manufacturing PMI, that's been below 150, which would be the break-even for that sum for six consecutive months. And even though folks are optimistic about the year ahead, and we've seen that number increase, it's still below 150. And the prospects of a trade deal 
are still spotty. I mean, we, yep. we just heard the long interview about that, and it's ended in tears in the last two, <laughs> throughout the last two years. And in this time, it could very well end in tears as well. Jason Schenker, thank you so much for joining us. He is president of Prestige Economics, also a Bloomberg Opinion contributor, joining us uh, from Vienna at the OPEC meetings. And John Authors, thanks so much for being with us as well, senior editor for Bloomberg Markets, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on a very busy morning, Lisa, with a strong jobs number, seeing a, a, gr- a very strong reaction, uh, positive, uh, just under 1% move in the equity indices here on the back of that news. Let's talk a little Facebook here. There's a couple of things I want to get to with our guest, Shira Ovide. Shira is a technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Shira, thanks so much for coming. I want to talk about, um, you know, uh, maybe coming to New York and increasing their presence here, which is very interesting. But I also want to get to your column because it's the, one of the greatest headlines I read today. Mark Zuckerberg isn't always a colorless automaton. Got to get to that. First, all right, coming to New York, big news, going to rent a whole bunch of space. What's going on there? So at least the Wall Street Journal reported that Facebook is talking about leasing a very large space here in the Fairly, the former Fairly Post Office building. Um, New Yorkers will know this as the former and, uh, I guess, future home of New Jersey Transit and Amtrak. <laughs> yeah, in my lifetime, sure. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully. Um, but this is a very large and sort of well-known building in New York City, and it just speaks to the expansion of large tech companies, notably Google and Facebook, into New York from their headquarters in the Bay Area. It raises a question. There was another story uh, on the Bloomberg talking about tech companies increasingly eyeing New York as a uh, as another option in addition to Silicon Valley. Why? Why is New York becoming more of a hub, or is it, for tech companies? So I think there's a few things at play here. One of them is that um, the the large superstar tech companies, you know, Facebook, Google, Amazon, go on down the list. They have just grown and expanded, you know, revenue and employees both. And as they've done so, you know, they in some cases have reached the limits of expansion in the Bay Area. Although if you go to Facebook's headquarters in Menlo Park, it basically looks like a perennial construction zone. They have like armies of construction workers building new buildings. So they're not done there yet. I think also these companies realize that not everybody wants to live in the Bay Area. Some people want to live elsewhere. There's been, uh, you know, an increasing push to um, letting people work remotely. So if you live in Montana and you want to work for Facebook or Airbnb, that's increasingly an option. Um, And I think there's also a phenomenon of tech companies looking for talent in other hubs in the United States and elsewhere. So you've seen Seattle, for example, being um, particularly fertile ground for a lot of tech companies who want uh, to associate themselves with people coming out of Microsoft or Amazon or the University of Washington or other places where there's um, high quality tech talent and New York is part of that, too. So, Sherry, let's get to your column here. We've seen a lot of Mark Zuckerberg. The public has seen a lot of Mark Zuckerberg increasingly over the last couple of years, oftentimes testifying in front of Congress or others. What's your sense, your takeaway about him as a spokesperson for the industry? Well, I wanted to just point out that there's kind of two different Mark Zuckerbergs, right? There's the Mark Zuckerberg that we see in media interviews or on occasions when he gives speeches or testifies before Congress. And I think that Mark Zuckerberg is a little bit 
uncomfortable when he's asked to talk about issues that are broadly about you know, the role of internet in the world and um, the nature of human trust and economic development and and Facebook's own role in all of those um, big picture questions. So that's the one Mark Zuckerberg. The other Mark Zuckerberg that you see less is in private settings or to employees where he's talking, I think, very confidently and capably about strategy and internet trends and, you know, knee camping competitors metaphorically. Um, and I, I just wanted to point out that there is this dichotomy that the Mark Zuckerberg that we often see in public is not the same Mark Zuckerberg that people know in more private settings. So do you think this ought to give investors more confidence in the leadership and the understanding uh, that he brings to the company going forward in some of the challenges that it faces? I think that's right. I mean, look, I, I don't know, maybe Mark Zuckerberg does not need to prove himself anymore as a capable um, product and business executive, right? The track record of Facebook in the last 10 years speaks 15 years, I guess, since he founded it, somewhat speaks for itself. Um, but I also point out that, look, the, the role of being a CEO of a superstar tech company is probably different than it was five or six years ago. And that's not only true for Mark Zuckerberg, but all these other companies as technology and as the internet play a greater role in our lives, in our economies, in our countries, in our personal interactions. These people are understandably asked to think bigger than just their companies, just their products um, and business strategies, and really asked to think about the role of the internet in public life and the world. And those are really difficult questions and probably not what Mark Zuckerberg anticipated when right. he started Facebook. Indeed, uh, a lot of people also <laughs> probably a yes. little blindsided by some of the transformational natures of uh, these technological advancements and, uh, and and companies. Shira Ovide, technology columnist with Bloomberg Opinion, joining us here in our interactive broker studios. Thank you so much for uh, for that. There are a lot of questions around the marijuana industry, namely whether or not the U.S. will legalize it on a broad level. In the meantime, you have states legalizing uh, the product, which raises a question. How do you advertise it, especially since it is not legal in so many places? Joining us here in our interactive broker studios, Joshua Otten. He is chief executive officer of Ronin, uh, which is one of the largest branding agencies for cannabis and hemp businesses. So, uh, Josh, we were just talking about uh, the perception of the industry and how do you first of all go about marketing a company that is not operating in a universally legal field in the United States? Well, that's a challenge, right? So when we launched Ronin about six months ago, our goal was to work with emerging brands who are building products and commodities and helping them to evolve into really um, real lifestyle and wellness brands. And so um, there's a lot of challenges on the cannabis space specifically because you're only selling in specific dispensaries and local, even in a state like California, you know, a lot of times you're only operating in Southern California or parts of Southern California. So so uh, the challenge is how do you generate campaigns and advertising that generates an ROI immediately? But a lot of times that's short-sighted because the reality is if you're building a brand uh, that isn't just a commodity, you can't just talk about ingredients 
or strains or THC percentages. Those are just what's in it, right? So you have to be able to build a brand that can communicate to consumers. So it's really a lot of content, content marketing, all the stuff that food and beverage does. It's at a slightly smaller scale, but you have to take those same steps. Do we have any success cases in the business right now of any brands kind of broken through a little bit and how did they do it? Absolutely. I think that if you want to kind of categorize them into two different buckets, if you want to look at, say, recreational or adult use and lifestyle, Cookies is a great example. Uh, it was founded by a, a, a rapper named Burner um, up in Oakland. Cookies is a lifestyle cannabis brand. Uh, they have some really great genetics, but really it comes down to content. And the reason I think they're winning is because they're selling tens of millions of dollars worth of merchandise and t-shirts and hats every year. And that's, that's what is a brand. That's a Red Bull, right? Like people who are yep. creating a self-identity around it. And then on the wellness side, you could look at someone like Adosis. They are creating these products that have activity groups. Hey, if you take this, it'll help you sleep. We're going to consistently dose you. This will help you relax. This will get you excited. So you kind of have these two buckets, activity group, outcome, and wellness, and then lifestyle. So it's almost akin to a Red Bull. You know, they, they kind of allude to what it is. Red Bull, Monster Energy, you know, you don't really know what's in those things, but it'll give you energy. And then there's five-hour energy. It tells you exactly what it's going to do. Yep. And so we, I see the people that are taking lanes and picking specific verticals are going to have success. I, I got this is, this is sort of unprecedented because even with alcohol, there are very few alcohol brands that advertise getting drunk. Right. There's there are very few advertising brands that try to uh, sell to that experience of the buzz. And yet, you know, essentially you don't take marijuana. You don't you don't you don't smoke up to to just taste the flavor. Right. I mean, it's to get high. So you have to be advertising the high and has that ever been done before i actually disagree and, and i actually take i actually look at the the food and beverage alcohol and beer as the as the way we should go because alcohol doesn't talk about what their proof is right i mean you go to a tequila bar and there's a thousand tequilas and they all have varying degrees of taste but you have your outcome but you know if you have four shots no matter what it is you're going to go home a little loopy um so my point is that cannabis brands that are advertising how high they get you or their thc percentages away from an educational standpoint because you want to know what you're consuming um that's not going to last in the market that's not the point necessarily um just like it, just like drinking wine isn't the point isn't to get loaded you can if you drink an entire bottle you're you're going to be wasted you're but one or two glasses and you're fine so same thing if you smoke half a joint or a couple of hits depending on what it is it's going to give you a nice equivalent um if you're looking for a recreational outcome so i guess my point is i think that the cannabis industry can learn a lot from from alcohol and beer by not focusing on how high it gets you and focusing on lifestyle and because because at the end of the day it's a commodity right wine is wine is a commodity it's grapes what makes it not a commodity is when you bottle it put it in a really nice bottle and start marketing it otherwise it's merlot or whatever whatever varietal it is so it's <clears throat> i'm wondering how you would advertise or market or promote your brand because there's a story out just uh, i think today high times holdings high times magazines uh, warning investors that they may not be able to continue operations after they didn't get their IPO off. So if I can't, the first thing and only thing that came to my mind if I was marketing a, 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 a cannabis brand would be High Times Magazine. How mm -hmm. else do, would I do it? So we, we're actually launching a network. So so we have about 100, part of our agency engine is that we have 150 hours of, of original content that I've produced over the last three years that is launched. We even have a partnership with Viacom and Pluto TV. So they have a THC channel. So we have anywhere from five to six million minutes watched a month just on Viacom and distributed in about 50 million homes. And we're now launching another network that's gonna launch in January that's gonna be in another, another 40 million homes with about 1,000 hours. So 
our purview is High Times has a very specific audience, right? They have in what I call the endemic consumer. These right. are people who are fans. The product is part of their self-identity. It's right. not just a product they consume. I'm looking for the wider audience. What's the political risk of putting this industry in the limelight? I mean, because on one hand, you know, if, if it sort of is within the community that's already devoted to the industry, it's one thing. If it's another, if it's trying to cater to the masses, are you worried about blowback the more visible you make some of these companies? Um, personally, you know, again, not to sound like a zealot, but you know, when you look at it, you compare it to food and alcohol, or not food and alcohol, sorry, alcohol and, 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 and even tobacco, there, there are no positive outcomes from consuming alcohol, right? I mean, no one's deluding themselves and thinking that, you know, having beer and alcohol has some positive health benefit. Red wine. Yeah, but then it's like, right, it comes out and then like two months later, <laughs> you guys true. will say it's not fair good enough, for you. So enough, who knows? Enough. But, but that's not the point. We're consenting adults. And so at the end of the day, we're consuming a beverage that has absolutely been proven to increase domestic violence, have drunk driving deaths, all these terrible outcomes, but that's okay. We're consenting adults, we consume it. So if you want to compare cannabis to, you know, again, alcohol and the industry, and we realized we can't prohibit it just because it has a lot of negative side effects, I would absolutely argue cannabis has a tenth of those same you know, uh, possible liabilities while still allowing for consumers to, you know, again, consume a safe product. The safety issues, I'm sure you guys have heard of it, right? You have all this sort of like, oh my God, the C CDC came yeah. out and all this. You know what? It was 100% the black market. And everyone inside the cannabis market knew it. And it was frustrating because we knew that it was vitamin E acetate. We knew that it was coming from illegal operators. And when you have a market like California, where two-thirds of it to three-fourths is still illegal black yep. market, and you have three-fourths of the city in California refusing to allow dispensaries and even fighting to allow delivery, all you're, do you're not reducing consumption, you're reducing access. Josh Otten, really fascinating stuff. Thanks for joining us. Josh Otten, CEO of Ronin, uh, based in Culver City, California, joining us live here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio talking about the cannabis industry. Uber's out with a very interesting report yesterday. They released an 84-page safety report seeking to quantify the misconduct and deaths that occur on its system and argue that its service is safer than alternatives. Let's dig into that a little bit with Eric Newcomer. He's a startup reporter for Bloomberg News joining us on the phone. So, Eric, tell us about this report. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, so Uber decided to proactively uh, release data on sexual assaults and uh, fatalities uh, in its cars and basically found that, you know, last year there were about 3,000 sexual assaults, which it defines in behavior ranging from, you know, an unwanted kiss to rape. And then on the fatality side, found about 50 fatalities a year. So this is, you know, pretty unprecedented transparency for a company to sort of proactively uh, disclose some of the worst behavior on its platform. Yeah, and I'm trying to understand how to view this report. So on one hand, yes, the transparency is a shift, particularly for Uber, which has been accused of being uh, of lacking transparency and has come under fire from UK regulators in particular. Uh, and so this would be a nice departure for them on that. On the other hand, 3,000 sexual assault claims, uh, more than 50 road deaths. How can we even frame that in terms of is that worse or better than others since this is not a normal report to put out? Yeah, it's stunning. It's hard to process. I mean, Uber tries to sort of 
uh, you know, position in terms of 1.3 billion trips that took place last year. But I think it's going to take time for people to compare this. You know, academics are clearly going to pour over these numbers and compare them to what, you know, subway systems disclose. But on, on the side of sexual assaults, I mean, it's always been the case that uh, at victim advocates have believed that cases were un- underreported. You know, college colleges have generally sort of had poor reporting and, you know, when they've put more pressure on students to report, you know, those numbers have gone up and that's, that's been good. So, so in a lot of these cases, there's this tension of wanting more reports because sexual assault is underreported while at the same time wanting to hold, you know, whether it's colleges or companies or government uh, accountable when, when these numbers are troubling. So, yeah, it's hard, I think, so far to say, you know, where is 3,000? Uh, we haven't seen lifts numbers. We don't have taxi numbers. So so it's, I think this is a starting data point. We're going to have to track it over time. It's interesting about uh, in the Bloomberg News report, uh, they cite here about 50 people have died in Uber collisions annually for the past two years. That's a rate uh, about half the national average for automotive, automotive fatalities. That's according to the company. So that gives that dynamic a little bit of context. On the sexual assault, Eric, is it, do they have a sense of you know, sexual assault on the part of the driver versus on the part of the passenger? Because I've heard, you know, bad stories about both scenarios. Yeah. So, I mean, it's actually pretty even. I think it's, you know, slightly, slightly more allegations against uh, drivers. But but overall, it's it's very close to even. So both riders and drivers, you know, are getting attacked by the other, and you know, it's it's uh, important to realize that I think we talk a lot about rider safety, but you know, drivers are inviting a stranger into their car as well. Yeah. It's an important thing to, to remember that they need to be protected. Also, I'm looking right now. Uber shares down 2.1 percent. Was this a mistake to put out? You know, yeah, it's it's tough. I think Uber committed themselves to this. You know, they said more than a year ago, I think that they were going to do this. And then they realized how hard it was, you know, and have have really sort of agonized over how to disclose the data. So it's, you know, we'll, we'll see over the long term if, if, you know, they want to turn around their reputation. You know, Dar Khazar Shahi, the CEO, said, you know, transparency is, you know, on the path to trust, basically. So it's a short term harm, but and it draws negative attention to them. But I think if they want to really be seen as a good actor, this is the type of uh, disclosure that they need to be making. Eric Newcomer, thank you so much for being with us. Eric Newcomer is a startup reporter for Bloomberg News, talking about this report out of Uber. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.